0: We think our lives are so complicated and so confused in the modern world, in the ancient world, and at any point in time, there are only these six things happening. It's a sight, it's a sound, it's a smell, it's a taste, it's a sensation, it's something going on in our minds. So these, I like to think of our life and of the unfolding of our lives as a six-piece chamber orchestra. It's just playing the music.
1: Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. As you know, someone once asked Deepa What is it like in your mind? And she said something, yeah, you know where it's going. And she said something like mindfulness and compassion. After 50 years of practice, what is it like in your mind? (laughs) What do we have to, quote unquote, look forward to? (laughs) Do you feel you've experienced something to make you confident that there is such a thing as enlightenment? Sometimes I have doubts about plunging all the way in the fear that this idea of enlightenment is not real. From your experience, or that of your teachers, can you share what would make us confident that there is such a thing as enlightenment, or even stages of enlightenment?
0: One of, one of the problems with multiple-part questions... <laughs> is the third part pushes out the first. (laughs) So what my
1: mind is. (laughs) Describe what your mind is like compared to (laughs) Deepama.
0: Hard to tell the difference. (laughs) So there are a couple of things that come to mind just in the moment, and I think I've uh, expressed this uh, in a couple of the groups. But when I look back, both to the early times of my practice and also over all the years of teaching, uh, the way I most like to characterize uh, the path of enlightenment uh, is as lightening up. That we just lighten up. (laughs) We don't take ourselves quite so seriously. Uh, and I've really experienced that over these many years, uh, both in how I approach my practice, uh, having been through so many ups and downs, you know, even, you know, up until now, it's it's not, as, I, as I said often, it's not like a, just uh, a unidirectional <laughs> path upwards, like up and down and up and down, and sometimes the mind is more concentrated and sometimes less. But whereas that used to be upsetting, or I would be concerned, or now it's just held very lightly, um, and also in the teaching, uh, I don't know whether you experience it or not, especially those of you who've been here in the early years. Uh, but I used to be more serious <laughs> in the teaching, and just maybe it's age, and maybe it's actually some progress along the path. But there's a lot more space, you know, space to play and space to be relaxed and space to connect. Uh, So that's that's a major shift that I've just seen. And I think it's probably true of everybody, you know, as they walk along the path. We just become less self-obsessed. And the correlation of... Not being so self-obsessed is taking interest in what's going on in our minds and bodies. You know, and so instead of having it all revolve around an I or me and how am I doing? And it's just an interest in what, what's going on in my mind. And again, I've said in some of the groups, one of the things that has helped me so much, you know, over all these years, um, is when my mind is in some kind of uh, disturbance or suffering about one thing or another, uh, the suffering, you know, the experience of dukkha really piques my interest. It's like, if my mind is suffering, I'm really interested to understand why. And this is an expression of a teaching that uh, for some people is hard to hear. So uh, and I think I mentioned in a group, I don't think I mentioned in the hall. Did I give you a trigger warning at all in the hall <laughs> about a teaching? <laughs> okay. This, this <laughs> <laughs> and it'll just be interesting to see how it lands. But for me, it's powerful so i was sitting with sadha upandita you know on retreat and he's a very really demanding teacher and in one of the dharma talks he said something which just kind of made me sit up straight he said we are 100 percent responsible for our suffering a hundred percent that's not to say that we're responsible for everything that happens to us and lots of terrible things can happen. So it's not about that. But how our mind relates to what's happening, that's completely up to us. You know, and we can either drown in it, we can be putting the blame on other people, we can, we can do all kinds of things in relationship to the suffering that's in our minds. But that understanding that no, we are 100% responsible for how our minds are holding whatever the circumstances of our lives are. And it is to acknowledge that sometimes the circumstances are really difficult and challenging. And sometimes the circumstances need addressing. So it's not about any of that. It's about how we are holding it in ourselves. And we can either hold it in a place of freedom of understanding of interest of wanting to understand what our minds are doing or not so for me that teaching is so powerful because it gives us agency if we think that someone else is responsible for our suffering we've we've turned over all the power you know then it's then it's just it's up to them whether whether we continue suffering or not but when we take responsibility for that It is empowering to understand that because we can do something about that. Uh, So, this is all part of (coughs) how my mind (laughs) tries to relate to things. Is there another
1: part? Uh, Yeah. Uh, This is related. What was the most beneficial correction? A teacher ever gave you about your practice or your understanding?
0: There uh, have been so many.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what I just mentioned in the group this morning, uh, <clears throat> two, two come to mind as I'm thinking back. So the first one. On the surface of it's not going to see, seem so profound, but it actually was really profound. I was practicing with Sayadaw Pandita in Nepal, and the conditions were terrible. Real, everything. I mean, the food wasn't good, and the, there were five of us kind of on a cement floor. You know, we each had our little pads, and it was noisy, and our room was right next to the latrine. So it was just all the conditions were... <laughs> Talk about having the thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> so I go into and my mind was just complaining a lot to myself. So I go into insidehow and I tell him what's going on, and he said, "Be more mindful." and I thought, "Thanks a lot <laughs> <laughs> Here, I'm listening this whole litany of things that are wrong with this place, and all he's telling me is to be more mindful. <laughs> However, I left the interview. I went out and do, did some walking, and I well, this is a great teacher. He said, be more mindful. Why don't I try it? And so, in the walking, I actually began to feel the movement and the touch much more closely. And this ties into a frame for practice that I think is useful for you, for people to, to hold. That is, that we want to practice in a relaxed way, but not a casual way. And very often, very often, we're practicing casually. It's, it's, it's a mind state that I call more or less mindful. You know, we were kind of there. We're not. We're not kind of totally lost. We're there, kind of, but not closely there. Not really feeling whatever's going on closely and intimately, fully. It was amazing. Within a few steps of dropping into that level of attention, all all of that mental proliferation completely fell away and it was such an interesting simple reminder both of the power of mindfulness you know and a real deep connection to what's happening at the moment it can take us out of this you know all of the mental restlessness and proliferation and uh, it's not hard to do it's hard to remember to do you know so that really was <laughs> very useful and uh, to this day when i feel my mind Whatever, it's getting a little caught up. and This corrective would be particularly valuable now. <laughs> I don't know, did you notice? I'm sure you did notice the energy in the room. Yeah, understandably. You know, but shh. And it just felt collectively we were getting disembodied, you know. We can practice with that. This, this is the correct. We can actually be more mindful and deal with whatever we have to deal with. But are we in our bodies connected or are we just, you know, is the energy carrying us up and out? So it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful teaching, even though it's incredibly simple, just to be more mindful. Uh, but closely and, and not with, not with force. It's, it's like, I know, it's just like with a feeling of intimacy with what's going on. Um, So just, uh, (laughs) everything can become an hour dharma talk. (laughs) So one time I was walking with my teacher, Munindraji in Bodhgaya, where I had been practicing in India. We were walking around the village, and he said something which at the time I just felt was really hokey, I didn't have any appreciation for it at all," he said. Uh, "Joseph, you know, I'm never lonely. I'm I'm friends with the clouds. I'm friends with the grass. I'm friends with the trees. And I I was young. I was like, yeah, my early twenties, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. <You know, it's, laughs> it didn't really resonate. <laughs> However, just as I've practiced over all these years." It is exactly true. When we're mindful in the way I was just describing, there is that intimacy of connection with with the breath, with the step, with the sound, with the feeling of the air on the skin. In that sense, loneliness doesn't make sense because there's always some intimate experience happening. And it really feels, it's, it's fulfilling. It's com- completing. Is that a word? It brings complete, it brings a sense of completion. And I really felt that. Okay. The other, the other corrective. I had been in Burma for quite a while. And my practice really felt like it was going to deeper and deeper places. And I was just seeing. I was seeing things in such minute detail. It was, it was amazing to me, you know, how, how, how I was seeing things. And I go into Sayadaw and I describe thinking, oh, he's going to kind of pat me on the back. And <laughs> all he said was, you're too attached to subtlety.
1: <laughs>
0: and, It really was a powerful, because I hadn't even realized there was an attachment. You know, oh, this is great. You know, (laughs) I'm just seeing so much. But the practice of liberation is about not clinging (laughs) anything. You know, but we can get so caught up in an idea of what the practice is or what we want to be happening. And then when it does happen, we get really enthusiastic And we forget that it's about not holding on to anything, letting all that happen as it does, but without getting attached to even these very deep meditative states or blissful states, if that should happen, Uh, because it's all just part of the passing show. Uh, So again, that was a a good reminder for me. At that time, it was really helpful. So then I could just settle back and not be so... like that and then you know the practice continues to unfold so th- those are the two that come to mind i just want to go back just about that, that enlightenment question it's definitely possible you know at least you know the different stages of awakening and particularly the first the first stage or the second stage many people have experienced that you know, many lay people who come to practice just like we have. Uh, yeah, it, ta- it takes a steadiness of practice and a commitment, and often it takes a period of time of lengthy practice. But it's definitely possible. It's not it's not some myth, and it's not out out of the range of possibility for any of us. Uh, the higher stages of awakening that really requires very particular strengths of mind. The concentration has to be very strong, you know, and, and the other factors of enlightenment. But the first couple of stages, it doesn't have that level of requirement to, to experience. Um, so I would really encourage you to hold that as a possibility. And the Buddha said that, from that first stage of awakening in in this tradition it's called stream entry it's like we're entering the stream of enlightenment and in the teachings it's said that from that point on one is destined there's no going back from that place so it's a powerful turning point you know in one's in one's path and i think it's beautiful to have that aspiration and then l- letting things unfold as they do, you know, and it may take a short time. It may take a long time. As one of my teachers said, in the, in the spiritual path, time is not a factor. So we can just let, we can let go of that, but really have the pole star, you know, of awakening, setting our direction, you know, and inspiring us. Uh, this, this is really possible.
1: Okay. Uh, th- this is related to uh, practice and your interactions with your teachers. What was the most supportive question or useful question you ever asked one of your teachers? <laughs>
0: You know, I can't remember yesterday. <laughs> uh, uh, we'll go on. Let, I'll let that set, up, but nothing, nothing is particularly coming to mind. Is uh...
1: okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll ask you a question about concentration then. Okay. 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 <laughs> What's your best advice to stay interested when you're concentrated? I often get concentrated and don't know what to do with myself.
0: Well, um, I think this is really, it, it points to something that I think is often overlooked, or not, not overlooked completely, but not emphasized as much. You know, we're very good at highlighting the hindrances and the the negative mind states, but being mindful of the wholesome mind states, being mindful of the factors of enlightenment, being mindful in the same way we are mindful, hopefully, of aversion or greed or sleepiness. We can have that same quality of interested mindfulness when the mind is very still, when it's calm. When there's equanimity, and those states should be recognized and really experienced mindfully, so we know, oh, this this is what calm is like, and, or concentration is like this, or equanimity is like this, and occasionally, even though from a, the perspective of I don't know, non-distractedness it may not be necessary but when the mind is concentrated periodically just dropping in a note concentration concentration stillness whatever the whatever the word uh, best describes your experience because the note would be a support for staying interested in the state now i'm um, describing this in terms of the concentration that comes uh, in the course of Vipassana practice, in terms of samadhi practices, concentration practices uh, that we may be doing, you know, leading to jhana and absorption in the very deep samadhi states. So reflection, uh, that's not helpful for that. But in Vipassana, keeping that interest and the non-identification with it, and that's another another um, aspect or benefit of the noting at that time, because it could be easy to become identified and attached to the concentration. Uh, and just by dropping in a note, we're acknowledging the state, but we're being mindful of it. You know, and so I think that's a really helpful thing to do.
1: Okay. If there's no self,
0: <laughs> this we, is the most frequent pre- prefix of questions.
1: <laughs> there, yes, there there were many of these along this <laughs> line. If there's no, line. Self. <laughs> if there is no self, and that this no self has no direct control over the elements of reality, <clears throat> what then is liberated, and how? What are those countless beings we want to liberate, including ourselves? if we are just a clockwork succession of interactions between elements over which we have no direct control.
0: <coughs> Should okay. I read it again? No. Uh, <coughs> once was enough. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of things here. One, the Buddha expressed so simply what the path is about and what's really the underpinning of our whole practice. And he said, he said that he teaches just one thing. He teaches suffering and the end of suffering. So that's what all of this is about in, in the context of The Buddhist teachings and these teachings, that's what it's about. It's to see the suffering that arises in the mind, to understand its causes, and to see that we can do something about the causes if we understand. To say that we don't have control over the elements, or I think I described anatta, One meaning of it is being ungovernable. It's ungovernable in the sense that situations are not completely subject to our will. It's not because we want something to happen that it happens necessarily. Things happen when we are in harmony and understand the causes and conditions necessary for something to happen. And so this is the beauty (coughs) of the Buddha's teachings. I mean, I would like to ask the Buddha, well, what's your mind like? (laughs) Because from the teachings, it's just amazing how he was able to see so precisely and so clearly what factors, what impersonal factors of mind, they don't belong to anybody, but they are a cause of suffering. He could see what factors of mind just lead to more suffering, like greed and like anger and like delusion. And he could see what factors, impersonal factors of mind, lead to awakening. So one of the factors of mind is wisdom. It's also an impersonal factor in the mind. It's, it's, wisdom has kind of two sides to it. One is the investigative side and one is the realizing the truth of what we're investigating, right? But that wisdom factor is also impersonal. It's, we don't have to claim it as I. We just have to understand, oh yeah, this factor, when it's developed, will lead to certain things. This factor, if it's strong, will lead to other things. So it's all working, and we can not control, but maybe, maybe a good word is guide. We can guide the unfolding, but again, it's not because we're willing it to be that way. It's the guidance can come from our understanding the conditions necessary for the outcome that we desire. So it's... I'm I'm thinking of an example. I, I don't know if it's an apt example for this question, but I'll put it out since I've been using it for the last 50 years. You go outside at night. You look up at the sky, clear sky. You know the, the constellation, the Big Dipper. Easy, easy, easy to see. Okay, so this is kind of a final exam for the retreat now. Is there really a Big Dipper up in the sky? <laughs> no. <laughs> Big Dipper is totally a concept. You know, we see a certain pattern, and we give a name to the pattern. The name is the Big Dipper. <laughs> But it's just a pattern of stars. And the pattern is useful. Because as I learned, you know, you can use the Big Dipper to find the North Star. So if you're in the middle of the ocean and you need to navigate, <coughs> look for the Big Dipper. However, there's no Big Dipper. Right? But try going out at night and looking up and not seeing the Big Dipper. It's really hard. Because we are so conditioned to see in a certain way and to see the pattern. Now here's the here's the punchline. When we realize that there's really no Big Dipper, that is just a concept, does anything at all change in the sky? No. <laughs> the sky is just as it always was. It's just we're seeing it in a different way. We're no longer compartmentalizing, you know, or separating out based on a concept, right? This group of stars from all the others. And so we're seeing (laughs) in a much more complete and total way what's there. And what's there can be understood in terms of the laws of, you know, science, physics and astronomy and whatever. Things are not happening randomly. Things are happening lawfully. We don't need the Big Dipper (laughs) for us to understand that. Self is just like Big Dipper. It's not there in the first place. However, we create the concept because there is a pattern of mind-body elements, just like the pattern of stars. There is a pattern. So when we look in the mirror, there's Joseph. But not really. (laughs) It's really just seeing. Right. So we don't need the sense of self to experience how things have always been. When we realize selflessness, it's not getting rid of anything. It's, it's not like we're getting rid of a self that was there. It's not there in the first place. We're just using the word self. As a designation for the pattern. That's what's, that's how the word is used when it's used with wisdom. You know, and we can, we can use that language. You know, if I and you and me and other and, and in certain situations, that's the level we're operating on. And that's totally fine. (coughs) You know, be very awkward to start saying, Can these five aggregates call your five aggregates for a date? <laughs> you know, very awkward. So we can use conventional language. That, that's not the issue. But how do we understand the fundamental reality of what this is? And that's what this whole practice is about. It's dropping out of, you know, our, or delusion of thinking that the concept is the reality. Is this clear? Are we don't, we don't need that? <laughs> the self is a useful concept and it is just a designation for the pattern of mind body elements that are unfolding lawfully. It's not chaotic and it's not arbitrary. It's following certain laws, which is why there is a pattern. You know, and we can see that. Uh, but we don't want to confuse that then with the belief, well, there's some unchanging me who's understanding it all. So I talked about this in some of the groups, just as a visual to express this. Generally in our lives, we're going through our life With all experience coming like this, they're all coming back to the me. I'm the one knowing, I'm the one feeling, I'm the one seeing. So it's all right back to me. With practice and with a gradually growing understanding and experience of selflessness, we go from this to this. So everything is still there. All the experiences of our lives are still just as they always were. But instead of our minds doing that with everything, you know, basically identifying in one way or another with something, even if it's just the knowing of everything, instead of that, we just are with things as they are. Without that additional... uh, self-referential tendency and that's what we learn that's what we're learning in the practice you know to be letting go of that self-referential and it's not easy because it's so deeply conditioned which is why (laughs) we're doing what we do you know it really takes practice to begin to shift the way we're seeing things (laughs) And again, it it doesn't mean that we also at times operate on the conventional level, because we do, and even do most of the time. But do we do it understanding that, yeah, this is just conventional reality, but it does not reflect the truth of things? And it's only when... Well, I'll, I'll sum up the value of beginning to see things in alignment with how things actually are is expressed by one Sri Lankan monk. No self, no problem. (laughs) You know, the the self is that, this concept of self and I, we have just loaded so much on it and so much of our suffering comes from this deep, deep, Belief, you know, that oh, yeah, there's a me and the me who's I don't know, just engaged in all kinds of things that cause problems. So it, it's really freeing, it's very liberating.
1: Okay. Practicing in this manner is a profound privilege and seems fundamentally incompatible with modern life. Where am I wrong? (laughs) In what ways is deep mindfulness practice compatible with modernity as experienced by many, particularly in the Western world?
0: This is a very simple question. And Buddha gave one discourse, which he called the all. And in this discourse, he described the totality of our experience in six phrases. That's pretty good. So what's, what is the all of our experience? The eye in visible objects, the ear and sound, the nose and smell, the tongue and taste, the body and physical sensations, the mind and mind objects, thoughts, images. Emotions. Is there anybody who experiences something other than one of those six things? The Buddha challenged me, he said, if you experience something other than that, please tell me. <laughs> no, it's amazing. We think our lives are so complicated and so confused in the modern world, in the ancient world. And at any point in time, there are only these six things happening. It's a sight, it's a sound, it's a smell, it's a taste, it's a sensation. It's something going on in our minds. So I like to think of our life and of the unfolding of our lives as a six-piece chamber orchestra. It's just playing the music, the music of sights and sounds and smells and sensations and thoughts. And So can we appreciate the music? It's the same, it doesn't matter what the culture is, or it's universal. You know, universal across cultures, uni- across time. These are the elements, the basic elements of our experience. And practice is paying attention to that. It's just what you've been doing, it's being my... Mindful of seeing, mindful of hearing, mindful of the sensation, mindfulness you know, of a thought or an emotion. So the practice is really simple. And much of the time we're not experiencing taste and maybe not even so many smell. So it's really only four things that are going on. So what's the problem? <laughs> it's just we get caught up in the concepts, which is a mental phenomenon. We just get caught up in the concepts about what's going on and we create these huge life stories and dramas and, and we lose touch with just these basic elements. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that the stories of our lives are not important, right? This is the conventional level of reality, you know, our relationships and our work and the world and the state of the world, all of that is really important, and we have to respond. But what's the place we're responding from? Are we responding from a place of a deeper wisdom, or are we just totally caught up in the story? Uh, Yeah, so, so, it's understanding the simplicity of this, which is why I was really encouraging right from the beginning and with that handout for daily activities, we can have really deep practice in the midst of our daily lives doing whatever we're doing if we drop into the level of those six things. And then when we need to engage the mind in concepts, we do. You know, and it's using the conceptual level when it's appropriate is appropriate and we do that and as i was saying in one of the groups you try to read a book mindfully mindful in the sense that we're doing here you can just start seeing black on white you know the words are not going to have any meaning so there are many times in our lives where we need to engage on the conceptual level and that's totally fine when Ninja, my first teacher he said in those situations which is a lot of our lives the kind of mindfulness we need is not this really pinpoint moment to moment to moment like that. It's more what he called a kind of general mindfulness, a background of mindfulness where we're doing what we're doing. We're engaged, we're fully engaged, but there's enough awareness that it will pick up if the mind becomes unwholesome as we're in the midst of whatever the engagement is. So that's That's enough, and that's the way to practice in the world. When we we don't need the conceptual mind to really be very watchful for all the stories that are going on, really see them as thoughts. When we're engaged in a situation that does need the conceptual mind, then we enter into it and we use that faculty of mind, which is a lot. This is a big part of our lives but can we keep that general mindfulness so we're not just totally subsumed by whatever the concepts are? Uh, yeah. So, so I think it doesn't have to do with this modern time or ancient time. It's the same practice. It's the same understanding. And we can do it.
1: When noting... My labeling is too slow for how quickly my experience and awareness changes. How should I approach this?
0: Mm. So that's actually a good sign in practice. As I said, I think, a few times, um, one of the developments of practice is an increasing refinement of the perception of change, right? Where we're seeing change... At first, maybe it's in big blocks, and then the blocks get a little smaller. And at times, when the concentration is steady and the mindfulness is strong, we're seeing impermanence just very rapid. It's just arising and passing, arising and passing very, very quickly. So obviously, at that time, the noting is going to be much too slow. So you can do one of two things, either drop the noting because... In that situation, it is a sign that the mindfulness is already pretty strong, and you might not need the noting at that time. Or, or and or, you could just drop in notes periodically, maybe every tenth thing or every twentieth thing. You know, you're going along, you're just with the flow, and then dropping a note, and then a little drop in a note. So either way would be fine. But it's actually a good sign, you know, when we really seeing things change with that rapidity.
1: In practicing or in any intimate relationship, we attune to others' emotional states as part of caring for and communicating with them. How do we attune without getting too entangled with their emotions, mindfully and with metta? So,
0: this actually came up, and I think, I think it's today's group. I was speaking about it. One of the most overlooked parts of our practice, and it's really uh, the fault of the teachers, because we generally don't emphasize it, Although, whenever I do speak about it, I wonder why we don't. Because it's really important. And that is being mindful of seeing. You know, for people with eyes that are in good working order, seeing is probably the predominant sense experience. We're basically walking through the world of what is being seen. Right? And then all the reactions to it and responses to it. So seeing is tremendously important part of our lived experience. And yet it's very rare that we actually become mindful that we're seeing. We're, we're basically more, when seeing is arising, we're most likely lost in what is being seen. And we're not mindful that we're seeing. So just one of the things I would recommend, uh, both for those staying for a couple of more days, those leaving, it's always with us all around, and it doesn't take any effort at all. We don't have to look for, for an object to see. It's just, it's always there. Just practice, you know, for even short periods of time, stopping, oh, seeing, seeing, seeing. Because just that changes the relationship to what is being seen. Okay, so this relates to a particular story. Years ago, in the very early years of teaching, there was one meditator who came often. Who, for whatever reason, had the most abrasive personality. It was just aggressive and abrasive, and difficult. And I was a new teacher. So they'd come in for an interview, okay. <laughs> okay, make some space, you know. And it was. It was challenging yeah you know, because the energy was coming and so this went on for quite a while and and then one in one interview something shifted in my mind and I just really looked at them I really looked I was seeing and when I looked at their face the suffering was so obvious because what, what causes that kind of difficult behavior or personality? There's some kind of suffering going on and that's being expressed in that way. But normally was so reactive to the behavior and to the personality as I had been. You know, I would just be reactive and try to protect myself and all that. But when I just could see and see the suffering instantaneously just Feelings of compassion arose and a whole wonderful relationship ensued. You know, I really enjoyed the meetings and we talked and, and it was all from seeing, you know, when I was so caught up in my own reactivity, I was not seeing, you know, I was just reacting. So that, that's on, you know, with a particular kind of visual expression, but the visual cues for how people are feeling, they're pretty obvious if we look. You know, we, we can see when people are happy or joyful or angry or f- afraid or whatever it is. We just have to see, you know. And so I would really—this has been a powerful, a powerful thing for me. Uh, so I would recommend practicing that, and I think that is a way, you know, to connect deeply— with what another person is feeling, without being subsumed by it, because the mindfulness of seeing is giving us that place of balance within ourselves. But we're seeing and open to it. Is this clear? That was a that was really a powerful moment for me, and to see uh, what a what a rich another uh, right word. a a rich possibility for compassion to arise or love to arise or, you know, whatever, whatever our emotional response is.
1: How does open awareness help concentration? It seems jumpy from one thing to the next would dilute it.
0: Okay. So when I was a kid, I lived up in the country this really small town. But I had relatives who lived uh kind of in Jersey, you know, suburbs. And my relatives lived next to a few blocks away from a busy highway. And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know why that should be fascinating, but coming from a small town uh, so I just used to like to go and watch watch all the traffic. <laughs> this was before iPhones <laughs> in those days that's what we did for entertainment <laughs> but I I learned a really big lesson in doing that okay so you're by the side of a road and all this traffic is going by there are two ways you might approach that one way if you want to really see every every vehicle that's passing so one way is tch, 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 tch. <laughs> the other way is in just letting the cars the vehicles cross your field of vision so i kept totally steady and everything was just passing by and i saw every single one so I think there's an analogy here. <laughs> the, the continuity of mindfulness of changing objects. So in each moment, the mind is steady. The objects are changing, but the steadiness can be there. It's not that we have to be jumping from one to the other. It's not a jumping thing. It's steady and just being aware of whatever is presenting itself moment after moment and that develops what is called momentary concentration because it's not concentration on a fixed object it's concentration on a changing object but concentration means steadiness it means the mind is not flickering it's not looking here looking there it's steady so it's just simply a question whether it's steady on one object, or steady on a flow of objects. So when you're practicing in, in that open awareness, we can rest in the steadiness of just being there, mindfully, in a receptive mode. Not We're not going out to the object. We're just receptive and let let all the objects pass by. Um, so it can be very steady and very relaxing. Okay. And if you want to practice on Pleasant Street, you can
1: <laughs> <laughs> may wait a while. Right. <laughs> Being of the same generation as you, death is an ever present reality in not a bad way. Do you personally believe in karma and reincarnation?
0: I do, but I would like to distinguish the belief in it or the tendency to belief in it from claiming I know. And some people, through meditative attainment, can they can say there are techniques for how to review past lives and other realms of existence. I mean, Deepama was extraordinary in this way she had all kinds of uh, spiritual attainments but even people with lesser attainment than that 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 ability can be developed but i do not have them but there have been a whole i did not start with this belief i mean i grew up like most of you you know in this culture i studied western philosophy at college I had no idea about karma and rebirth or anything like that. But over the years, there were a few significant points that made me become more open and inclined to believe it, which I do. Um, one was just, it is very much part of the Buddhist teachings. When you read the discourses, it's on almost every page. So my, at a certain point when I could confirm so much of what the Buddha said in my own experience, it made me, well, if he was right about all this, maybe he's right about this. You know, so that, okay, that's beginning of an opening. Then I met Deepama, who had the ability to really see for herself, you know, all this. And Again, that's not proof, but I had no—I had no reason, or there was not even any feeling in myself to doubt what she was saying, because she said she experienced this, so I believed that. And it is right out of the texts, you know, the, of how to accomplish this. So there is a formula for doing it, you know, if people really wanted to commit to that. So that was another. So many, almost all of the great teachers. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, this is just an integral part of their understanding. And with many of them, it does come from their personal experience. So, that was another another piece. Third piece was, in the course of my practice, I really, at a certain point, began to experience yeah, in a certain way, the immaterial nature of awareness, of consciousness. That it's not a material phenomenon. And so it's not really located any place, because location has to do with physical phenomena, material phenomena. And so just when I got a, a much more kind of expansive understanding of the nature of awareness, the nature of consciousness, and it not necessarily being tied to physical phenomena. It's it's a distinct phenomena. So that again opened my mind, well, yeah, lots of things can be possible here. Uh, So it was kind of all these things, just little pieces that suddenly, you know, Led me, as I say, to this inclination to believe. Uh, and if it's not true, so what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, so that's how I hold it. But
1: you know, I... Okay, can I ask a question? Yeah. yeah. So if if this does not seem likely or possible. Uh, to an individual who's a practitioner, is the removal of uh, provisional confidence in this uh, a deal-breaker in terms of their practice and its development?
0: Good question, and not at all. So, Maninjaji, my first teacher, he used to love talking about the deva worlds, you know, the heavenly realms. And in the Buddhist cosmology, you know, there's all these realms of existence, and lots of things are going on, in this mysterious universe that we are just not attuned to. It's Maybe you could think of it as kind of uh, wavelength frequencies, is that the right? You know, where, where we can see or experience certain wavelengths and others we're completely oblivious to. So it's not hard for me to imagine that there are things going on at different frequencies that are just outside of our usual sensory... Capability. It's not, that's not hard for me to picture. So, Munindraji used to love speaking, and he trained Deepama of how to do all this stuff, you know, seeing all these realms. So, he would talk about it a lot, talk about the Deva world, and I loved it. <laughs> for whatever reason, I just really loved hearing about it. But he would always say, You don't have to believe this in order to practice, in order to become awakened. This is not a necessary, necessary component of enlightenment at all. So he would say, you don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> so that was always how he ended. Uh, so.
1: Great. Well, thank you. thank you, Joseph. That brings us to the end of our time.